1: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm one of your co hosts. I'm joined by Max Linsky. Just Max and I today. Hey, Max, how are you?
2: I'm good, man. I miss Aaron. It doesn't feel like, um, doesn't feel the same without him. Me too. But he'll be back. He'll be back next week. It's gonna we'll be have hard. him back next week. <laughs> we'll have him. He's, uh, he's invited back. He's invited back. Who did you invite on the program this week, Evan? Uh, This week,
1: I invited uh, Sarah Topol, who is a reporter and writer. She's currently a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. She's written long features for Harper's, for BuzzFeed News, GQ, The Atlantic. Uh, She generally does this kind of uh, time-intensive, incredibly up-close reporting on some of the most difficult international subjects, including several that we talked about along the way in our conversation, the Rohingya genocide, child soldiers in Nigeria, arms trafficking in Libya, ethnic cleansing in China. Her most recent story for the Times Magazine from August is about a woman in Taiwan, Nancy, who participated in the Hong Kong protests and then helped Hong Kongers try and flee the country during the ensuing government crackdown. So she covers a pretty wide swath of the world and she finds these characters to sort of portray these very difficult subjects through. And I've wanted to talk to her for a long time about how she does it. I will say she's not the kind of reporter who generally centers herself in these stories or even talks that much about her work in interviews. So it was a real privilege to have her on to do so here. And I personally got a lot out of this conversation and I think a lot of listeners will too.
2: I'm so glad she's on the show. I feel like her byline has gotten to this place now where when I see it, I just like stop what I'm doing and, and read the piece. And every time I come away with it being just like, how did she do that? How did she get in there? How did she find these people? How did she do this work? So I feel like uh, these questions will be answered. Yeah, we got into it. Uh, we got into a new uh, relationship with the fine people at Vox. Long Form Podcast is now produced in partnership with Vox. And uh, it turns out we, we like them quite nice people over there at Vox. Now, here is Evan with Sarah Topol.
1: Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) It's really great to have you here. It's one of these situations where... I started out thinking, oh, I want to talk about this story. And then I started reading back, and I was like, oh, I want to talk about this story. I want to talk about this story. I want to talk about this story. And then I quickly exceeded the amount of time that we're going to have to talk about all your stories. The stories that you've done over the past, let's say, few years, they just range all over the world. So the most recent one is about Hong Kong and Taiwan. You've got the Rohingya genocide story that you did about the teacher who fled the ethnic cleansing. You've got the boys who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria. You've got a Uyghur family that was torn apart by ethnic cleansing, a political murder in the Ukraine, sex and gender story in the Dominican Republic, going back further, Libya, Russia. So I am very interested in how you conceive these stories and how you find them. Let's start first with the most recent story about Taiwan. Maybe you can just describe a little bit about what the story is about.
3: The story is about a young Taiwanese woman who gets caught up in the protests in Hong Kong after visiting there and making friends with some of the members of the Hong Kong opposition and her attempts to bring them to Taiwan and help them settle in there. And as she goes through this kind of political awakening, she starts to think about her own country's future and what it means to be up against and encroaching Beijing.
1: Were you looking at doing something on the Hong Kong protesters and then you kind of ended up with Taiwan or how did you land on kind of coming at it that way?
3: Yeah, I think that initially I was asked to think about doing a story about the Hong Kong protests and I have covered a lot of protests. I've been fortunate enough to cover uh, a lot of different social movements since the Arab Spring. And I thought that, you know, by the time I was kind of free or able to to do something about Hong Kong, it felt like a lot of really fantastic journalists had written about the protests in Hong Kong and that. Anything that I did would kind of be a pale comparison. <laughs> and I thought that maybe the story in Hong Kong in and of itself had kind of reached a almost like a natural end, but not really an end, but like a very sad end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that maybe there was something to be done from Taiwan. And I didn't know really anything about Taiwan or Hong Kong, to be perfectly honest, and was just kind of reading through things about Hong Kong, things about things about Taiwan and and stumbled on, I think it was like a Washington Post story about this underground railroad. And I thought, this is really fascinating. I think there's probably something you can do there. So I pitched a story about the story of Hong Kong through the eyes of a protester who had fled to Taiwan and a Taiwanese person who was helping them settle into their lives. I thought I could braid two very intimate stories into one.
1: So where do you start in terms of educating yourself? Like, do you try to sort of do some sort of mini education or do you try to do it through the sources that you end up finding?
3: I buy all the books. I read all the books. I interview all the experts before I go. Mm. And then I get there and I realize that I know nothing. I mean, I know like less than I think someone who maybe didn't spend time reading 10 books because I think I know, but I don't know anything. And then I spend the first two weeks just wandering around asking the totally wrong question, just making a total fool of myself in front of everybody. And that is like, obviously, everyone who you encounter in that phase of reporting is like so kind because they just have to be because you're just this clueless person who's like, well, I read all these books and I talked to all these experts and then I've come here and I I have this question. And they're like, what do you even really know? Like, you you don't know anything. So then everybody kind of takes takes pity on this person who hopefully it looks as if has actually been trying to do something. <laughs>
1: it counts that you, you it, did try. It counts
3: that you try. And then re-explains everything to me. And then I think the process continues because I, mean, I, I think that I know something and then I come home and then I look through everything. I mean, for the Taiwan story, I did over 100 interviews. Yeah, and then wow. and I come home and I realize that fuck, I actually probably still don't know anything about this. And then I have to like a third time relearn What I thought I knew, this was like a distinct memory of mine with this story, is like, oh, what this Hong Konger was telling me that I had read in this book is actually in this article. And if I had known that at the time, would I have asked a different question entirely? I think the whole process of this is just like a, wow, I have a lot to learn about everything all the time.
1: I think if I'm not mistaken, in the story, it says that you were there for three months. Were you there for three months Continuously.
3: Yeah, I was there for. Well, I spent 16 days in quarantine in a in a uh-huh. room similar to, <laughs> to not to this not to the studio, <laughs> but so uh, I was I was fortunate. I had a big room that was nice of the times. And then yeah, and then I was there for the rest of the time. I mean, I was. It was also like really lucky that in some ways like there was no COVID. I like skipped three Taiwan. months of yeah, yeah. I skipped three months of COVID here. Wow, yeah. So it was, that was a
1: good choice as a story to do for that particular time.
3: It was, it was, and also I tried to do remote reporting. Mm-hmm. I tried for like three months. I failed like spectacularly, and was like, I can't do this. I have to go face to face. I don't know how to do this otherwise. So then I went to Taiwan. Is
1: that for you a long period of time to spend on the ground relative to? other stories? Or is that about what you aim for? I mean, that's, that's a long reporting trip for even a lot of magazine reporters.
3: Yeah, I should say that I definitely it is thanks to the support of a lot of institutions who allow me to go and do something for a long time. But it also comes from like the way that maybe I came up through journalism, which is as a freelancer applying for a lot of grants, because they're just by the time I was doing kind of long form for Harper's, let's say there just wasn't a lot of money uh, that the publication was going to (laughs) invest in, or maybe that was never the case with Harper's, but like it was you were never going to have your expenses covered the way that I had read other great journalists had, had, had those opportunities. So when you apply for a grant, you know, you kind of apply for like a lump sum. And It's up to you really if you're gonna spend the lump sum the way you say you're gonna spend the lump sum or if you're gonna eat like bread and cheese on the street and try to make that lump sum stretch for as long as you can. So I've been fortunate that places like the Pulitzer Center do fund this reporting or the New York Times or whoever, but then I kind of take that and try at least to like really squeeze it out just because for me, it just takes a long time for me to like understand what's happening around me. I recognize that, and so I try to stay for as long as possible.
1: When you arrive there, like in Taiwan or, or like even in Sweden for the, for the Uyghur story, how much have you sort of nailed down and kind of know what they're going to tell you and you're there to have it unspool, as opposed to like, it's more of a mystery whether they're gonna, when you show up at their door, they're gonna give you the time that you're looking for?
3: It really depends on the story. Yeah. When it came to the Taiwan story or the Rohingya story, I had no idea who I was going to find. When it came to the Uyghur story, I actually reported, I think, in like four countries. I first went to Kazakhstan to talk to some Kazakh Muslims who had escaped from the camps. I then went to Finland. I interviewed a young Uyghur guy who I thought maybe would have been a good character mm. for the story. I use all of this material in the piece, it's just that the people aren't always named and, and that weighs on me sometimes because some people want to be named and, and mm. you know you don't always have an opportunity. So that, that
1: guy does not end up in he the He doesn't end up in the, the story, story, no.
3: Um, and then I went to uh, Sweden and I met Hamar and I had been speaking to her for months before I went to see her. Sometimes I have a feeling about the person uh, and I had, like, a feeling about her. And then I kind of—we met, and, and I always offer people the opportunity to stop talking to me. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, tried to pressure Homar into not talking to me.
1: <laughs> really? Just to kind of—to uh, test whether or not she really wanted to do it, you mean?
3: No, I think I, I actually—I'm I, in a pretty Janet Malcolm headspace about a lot of this stuff. Uh-huh. And I, I often think, like— can I do justice to this person? Is this person aware of what they're getting into? And I'd like to warn this person about what they're getting into. And with Homar in particular, the risk to her family was so Great that I felt it was important to tell her that like I've been here for you know five days we've been talking for 10 hours a day but if you want to trash all of this material I would be happy to do it I don't care your family's life is like way more important than like what the New York Times magazine thinks I'm like capable of or not. Yeah Um, because
1: for people who haven't read the story so she had left for Sweden her sister had left the United States but their parents had been taken presumably it's not really clear for how long by the government and put in a re-education center of some sort, it seems most likely. So there was still a risk that that could happen to them again right. based on the story coming out.
3: Exactly, exactly. And that
1: was like one of the things that twisted you up about the story too. reading it is sort of like she knew that and it wasn't clear if her speaking out helped them or hurt them. Yeah, And I guess you're what you're saying is you had that same dilemma.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I think about that all the time. And I think about that for all of the people I write about. I mean, not all of them, because some stories I do are, like, about bears in Russia, and like, that's (laughs) fine. Um, But I think about that a lot when it comes to, like, for example, Nancy, when it comes to whether or not she can travel to, like, pro china places or mm-hmm. regimes that are supported by China. Is she aware of like what, you know, talking to the New York Times magazine really is when it came to the Rohingya teacher I wrote about? Was he really comfortable with having his photo taken at all? Was he really comfortable with talking to the media because, you know, they might be pushed back into Myanmar and then I can't, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing anyone can do for those people. So I think I, I often ask people, maybe almost too regularly they get annoyed with me, like, I'm like, we don't have to do this anymore. Like tell me if you want to stop, tell me if you have any questions for me, like you know, anything you want, like let me help with that.
1: Does that follow a period up front where you've also had to convince them initially? Do you have a method that you use to convince them and then you end up saying, like, I just want to double check? Or what do you say to them when you start out?
3: I think it really depends on the on the person too. I'm sorry to kind of I don't it's think I have, generalize. like, a, a method, per se. Yeah. I can give you kind of, like, examples. Yeah. I think, you know, Nancy and I met one night about something totally different. We were talking about there were five Hong Kongers who had been detained by the Taiwanese government, and they were not allowed to contact their families or lawyers. And she was deeply upset about this. And this was a story that was, like, not really coming out too, too much um, in the international press. And she met me to raise awareness of this. And she wanted to talk about these five Hong Kongers. And I was interested in the five Hong Kongers and this other guy who brought her who had like publicized their case initially. But then there was like something about Nancy that made me want to keep talking to her. Mm -hmm. And so I like showed them a copy of the New York Times Magazine Uyghur story. And I said, like, this is the kind of thing that I do. I'm interested in finding like this kind of thing. I'm looking to do something about like a Taiwanese person. But I didn't want to say that it was them because I never want to get people's hopes up because like I said, like sometimes I'll interview somebody for like a long time and then they won't end up in the story and I'll feel terrible so I don't always say like you'll be that person I'm mm-hmm. like this is the kind of thing I do this is what I'm looking for uh, let's talk again mm-hmm. yeah and then we we kept talking
1: have you had people who you've spent days and days and days with who have then sort of taken you up on uh, actually you're right <laughs> I don't I, I no longer no. want to be in this no weirdly what do you think they think
3: I mean This question haunts me all the time. I don't know. I mean, I can guess what they think. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to actually talk to them, I guess, about what they think. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that people – there are things that people want the world to know. Yeah. And those things are very important to them. And they have found somebody who wants to hear them Mm -hmm. and somebody who will transmit that, hopefully – to the world and I don't know I mean they stick around it's crazy how much time I ask people to spend with me I wouldn't do it you know no way I wouldn't tell my friends to do it I I would not do it I mean not to give kind of too long winded of an answer but like I asked Humar, you know, and Humar is—I mean, the weaker woman that I wrote about—is—is—I mean, she's brilliant. She's way smarter than I am, and she, um, she's she's very thoughtful and and very aware of the media. So it's not like she was going into something with her eyes closed. But I asked her, you know, like, why were you talking to me? Do you like, why not like a China correspondent, like somebody who actually knows this place and this this time? And her her answer was that she really wanted because she had felt like an outsider her whole life, she wanted to talk to someone like an outsider. She didn't want someone who had a preconceived notion of like the han weaker divide or mm-hmm. what the CCP was or wasn't doing or, or whatever. She wanted to talk to somebody who had like no skin in the game and she chose me, like she'd read other articles that I wrote, and she was like, "Fine, like I, like you're, you'll do, not you'll do." Like, like <laughs> she was very nice. She, she, she was happy. Um, I think, yeah. So I think it's her and I talked about like, what is it like to have your story, you, a young Uyghur woman growing up in China, told by a white woman who grew up in New York City. Are you okay with that? Like, how do you think about that? Because I think about that all the time. And she was like, look, I mean, I'm not I'm not stupid. Like, I know that this is going to be different to how I really view things. But I think you're going to do as best you can to, like, do the right thing. And I'm okay with that, Mm -hmm. which I think made me feel like I had more of a like permission to write her story. I think that it's good to have these conversations with the people you write about. I don't think it's right to ignore these like thorny issues and to just pretend they don't exist because they do exist. And I want the people that I write about to like know that I'm going to try my best to like honor the trust they put in me.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening
1: Can you explain to me some of the logistics of these stories? For instance, reporting in a refugee camp, how are you approaching that and sort of what happens when you get there?
3: It's helpful to start with kind of some of the background research that you do. So before you even go, you would do a bunch of pre-reporting, talk to experts, reach out to NGOs, reach out to people on the ground who can facilitate or help you uh, when you actually get there. So in the case of, let's say, the Rohingya refugee camps, before I got there, I reached out to Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, people who have assisted other journalists, uh, fixers, who I think your listeners know who they are, and tried to set up kind of like a something that I would immediately be able to walk into and start working. Mm-hmm. I started with like a theme or an idea. I wasn't sure who I was actually going to find. I was interested in intergenerational exile, uh, refugees that had been kicked out of Myanmar multiple times in their immediate families. So I had this idea, and how do you kind of live in a place that doesn't want you? And you know that it doesn't want you and hasn't wanted you for decades. And you know that from your grandfather, from your father, and now uh, you. So I had reached out to a fixer and a driver. And in the case of the Rohingya, uh, a translator. So I actually had a team of three people working with me. Um, And then when I arrived, they picked me up uh, at the airport And then you kind of just immediately start working. You have to get your papers uh, in order to get into the refugee camp, then you get into the refugee camp. And while you're there, you've kind of talked to your team about the kinds of people that maybe you're looking for. You start talking to NGOs, you start talking to community leaders, and then the fixer who has really deep ties in the community starts to kind of use their ties in order to find the kind of people that you're looking for. And in the case of Futhu, it was actually almost accidental that we found him because we were having trouble kind of finding people who were really uh, expressive about what they had been through and who had their family members who had been through these waves of exile. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were put in touch with a teacher. And it was interesting because all these teachers, they knew each other. And so I started talking to one teacher about what had happened in his town. And he said, you know, you should talk to this other teacher. He's really good at knowing everything that happened in his town. And he can really explain to you what happened. And so we kind of were passed along to to different people until we ended up talking to Futhu and the first time i met futhu he was like standing on this bridge and we got there and he immediately started talking like he just like he just couldn't stop talking and i was like what what's happening here wait hold on like let's back up let's let's think about like who are you like what do you do how did you get here you know and he just really wanted to talk about what had happened in his community and so it, it started that way so i think you're always working through the logistics that you've hopefully set up ahead of time and also through almost by chance when you are kind of like talking to people and asking people to put you in touch with more people, put you in touch with more people, put you in touch with more people, and then after a while, hopefully you find the person who you maybe are going to continue talking to.
1: I want to talk about how you kind of approach these people. I mean, this is true, I think, in the Taiwan story and I'm sure in the Uyghur story there's trauma there, but in this story, in this Rohingya story, and also like with the the boy soldiers in Nigeria, you're talking about people who have been so incredibly traumatized by events that are kind of unfathomable to a person like me, let's say. How do you conceive your approach to them to ask them about these things?
3: I think you never actually ask people head on about what they've been through. Mm. and you always ask people to just tell you what they want to tell you about anything that has happened to them and usually like a lot of my stories do i try to start at the beginning so like this event that happened to you doesn't define you is not why i'm here necessarily like tell me about your childhood tell me about your life tell me about the things you think are important in your community and By the time we get maybe to the traumatic part, I hope they've seen enough of who I am and how I interview to feel comfortable telling me that they don't want to talk about certain things. So, and I always ask, like, are you okay with this? Can we talk about this? Do you want to stop? Do you Mm -hmm. need a break? Is this okay? And if you decide it's not okay, we can just stop. I don't necessarily need you to tell me everything. So, tell me what you're comfortable with.
1: One story that just like absolutely rocked me and just has stuck with me is the story about the boy soldiers, partly because it seemed like you somehow like captured what it feels like to be a kid and then to experience this. And it's just like, it's so hard to imagine, maybe because I have kids, I don't know, but it just like, I could not get over that story. So I want to kind of walk through that in the same way in terms of how you found them.
3: When I was in Nigeria, I also had the great fortune of working with a Nigerian journalist who had been a journalist for like 30 years by the time we met. And he kind of moonlighted maybe as a fixer. He helped foreign journalists when they came to town to Maiduguri. So when I got to Maiduguri. We had already established that I was looking for kids who had been abducted by Boko Haram and that I was interested in talking to them. This story is a little bit complicated because of consent and children and also endangering them. If the community found out that they were talking to journalists, it could endanger them because they would be marked as kids who had something to do with Boko Haram. So I talked to a bunch of international NGOs that are working on these issues as well as researchers who deal with child trauma and had set up like a plan for how I should report the story to do the least amount of harm to these kids as I could. So there was the hotel that I was staying in. And then every three days we rented a different set of hotel rooms so that we were always moving around. So nobody could tell where if these kids were coming somewhere, they weren't going Mm -hmm. to the same place all the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. so that you didn't have any patterns so the community wasn't like tipped off that this was happening. And then um, as I and uh, Shehu, who is the journalist that I worked with, would go out and using his connections, like find kids who had been through this experience, And bring them with a separate car with a driver we were working with but not all the time to these hotel rooms where I would interview them and then we would kind of send them back and I wouldn't be seen with them outside of this compound because all of the hotels there are kind of in compounds so that it wouldn't tip people off that they were talking to a journalist so Mm -hmm. in that kind of method, we were able to find three of the kids who I wrote about. And during interviews with me, the three kids said, oh, there's another kid here, but we don't talk to him because he terrifies us. And we asked them more about this kid and they told us the story about how he became an emir. And we talked about it and we thought maybe we could find him. So Shehu, went out and like found him where he was working and asked him if he was willing to talk to a journalist. And then after he agreed, I interviewed him and we, we actually kept these two sets of kids really separate from each other mm-hmm. just so that they would be safe, so that they both didn't know that the other one knew that we were talking.
1: It's sort of the same thing with them, like this like, re-traumatizing question. Sure. Because part of the story is about how they have tried to go about forgetting what happened I mean some of them were forced to do terrible things some of them kind of like said okay I'm just gonna be the best soldier I can be and other ones tried to like stay at the back and it's just and then they're spending their lives trying to put that behind them and so how did you approach them
3: it's tricky because like you need parental permission, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a huge issue. That is a complicated issue in Nigeria. It's a complicated issue when it comes to Boko Haram because, like, sometimes parents don't know. Sometimes parents do know, and it's like a whole, it's like a whole separate thing. And then there's the issue of the like actual translation and interviews, and that I think was similarly like, tell me as much as you want. Don't tell me what you don't want. Like, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Let's, like, listen to... I forget what... There was, like, one song that we would play. They loved Justin Bieber. Mm. So, I mean, you know, if you don't want to talk, like, let's, let's play Justin Bieber songs and, like, hang out. You know, kids and people in general, if they're maybe given an opportunity to talk about things in the way they want to... Like, people want to talk about things... I think, or at least the ones I talk to. And so it kind of works in the end, I think, yeah. No one's ever been like, I hate this and I'm leaving. I think people have been like, I need a minute. Or I've been like, I need a minute. And that's totally okay.
1: Do you know if they even have read the story or what their personal reaction is to it coming out?
3: Well, I think in the case of the kids, they didn't have much of a reaction for them because it just wasn't in their universe but I think that for some of the people that I write about it does it matters a great deal. The main person in the Rohingya story Futhu was really thrilled that the piece came out and we actually managed to get him a bunch of issues into the camps which was a quite a logistical operation because um, you, you can't get mail into the camps and they can't leave the camp so someone has to go back and forth from the camp and had to get The magazines to Bangladesh and then he got them. I mean, he was really delighted. And it meant something to him that his story, the story that he had been trying to capture his whole life of his village was somewhere. It really, the connection or the reader's emails that I was cutting and pasting to him, they really did mean something to him because I think in his case, the lack of knowing that anything was actually happening outside of this refugee camp, mm-hmm. the acknowledgement of what the Rohingya had been through was uh, was very difficult. And so having an issue in his hands and having these comments from people was valuable to him as a person individually.
1: Can we talk a little bit about how you came to do this work? How you sort of developed the ability to talk to people in that way? Because I'm curious if there's anything from your background that kind of led you naturally to these types of stories. The only thing I know from one of your stories, I can't remember which one, that your parents were immigrants from Russia, or at least from the former Soviet Union somewhere, Russia. So how did you grow up?
3: I grew up in New York City. I grew up with my mom. I went to public school. I speak Russian at home uh, with my family. I learned English in school. Then I went to college in the Midwest. It was the first time I really realized that I wouldn't necessarily be perceived as American by a lot of other people in America. Uh Um,
1: How did that realization come to light? Was it in an (laughs) unpleasant way?
3: uh, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I would say like someone asked me why I spoke gibberish on the phone with my mom. I, it wasn't like maybe the most enlightened <laughs> group of young people, but they were young, and and that was okay. And you think
1: they would know Russian?
3: <laughs> you'd think they would. Yeah, I don't know. It was a it was a weird. It was a great school. I I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned about another part of America, but I think growing up in New York and you know growing up in an international household and going to public school in New York, like I was always surrounded by kind of an international community and so I was always interested in like going overseas. I think when I was like 13 maybe I read The Beach.
0: This is actually
3: embarrassing. I read The Beach by Alex Garland and it changed my life. I had no idea you could travel My family didn't have money or like did we didn't travel. We didn't like go, you know, we were like living in our tiny apartment. And I was like, oh, my God, you can see the world. You know, like everyone else, like I subscribed to National Geographic. I cut out the pictures. I put them on my room. And then I was like backpacking. This is it. This is the way I'm Mm going to see the world, the whole world. And so after during college and after college, I like worked and I saved money and I like went backpacking. and, And then I came back to the States and I worked for a year for an NGO in D.C. And I hated it. I really didn't like nine to five. I didn't Mm. like working in an office. I was like, why can't we wear jeans? Why am I in trouble for wearing (laughs) jeans? And then I decided to like go backpacking again. uh, And I decided to go to the Middle East which I'd studied in college. And uh, I went to Cairo and I met up with my best friend's cousin who was writing for an English language newspaper there. Mm. And we went to a bar and he was like, I was like, so what are you you doing here? And he was like, yeah, I I write for an English language newspaper. And I was like, you can support yourself doing that? And he was like, yeah, totally. And then later I found out that like his parents were paying for his (laughs) parents. But by that point, I started. He tricked you into it. He tricked me into it. I started writing book (laughs) reviews for the local English language newspaper. And that's kind of how I started in journalism.
1: How did you find your way to kind of like the publications here that you wrote for from there? how did you find the editors?
3: The idea of being a journalist in general, if you don't Come from a place where you can afford to be a journalist is like the suspension of all rational belief, right? Like you just have to be like, this is a dying industry. I don't have any contacts in this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. It's gonna be great. So I had like one email of like someone I knew from college who was an editor. This is really actually kind of embarrassing. He was an editor at National Geographic Adventure. I emailed him and I said, hey. I had been to Nagaland, which is, like, one of the states in India, the seven sister states that, like, no one really goes to, when I was backpacking after college. And, like, I wrote a diary entry about it. Do you want to publish it in, like, national... Because I was, like, obsessed. I mean, part of... I think I didn't mention, like, I was, like, obsessed with those Best American Travel writing books. Mm, Like, I used mm -hmm. to just, like... After I found out about backpacking, (laughs) I used to, like, collect them, and, like, Dave Eggers was, like, in Havana, like, picking up hitchhikers, and Tom Bissell was, like, in the RLs, like, like doing... And I was, like, wow. And I remember sitting in my apartment in Washington, D.C., just like reading this slate, used to have these dispatches. And this guy, Josh Kuchera, was like writing dispatches from like Central Asia. And I remember just like crying because I was like, I want to do that. that could I, be how me. do you, how did, when they couldn't be me? Like, <laughs> how do you do that? Like, what does that even mean? And so um, I later met him. He's very nice. He's a friend of mine now. But I didn't know how you do this at all. Yeah. But I emailed this guy and I sent him this like, a diary entry it was so embarrassing. And he wrote back and he was like, That is so great. This is a great start, but it is not gonna work
1: for us. We'll never um, use this, but
3: yeah. yeah. But like here's an email of someone who like maybe would be interested in a story about Egypt. And so I like got that email. And then I just kind of built from there
1: did you we don't have to get into your personal finances but like did you suspend your disbelief long enough to get through to a place where then you could make a living
3: yeah yeah I mean not a great living but yeah I I always had a cut off line I mean at every step in this so when I started I was like I was writing for the Daily News Egypt. Then I did an internship at Reuters. Then I like started stringing for the Christian Science Monitor. Then I did an internship at AP. And then I like started working for Newsweek. So I kind of like built this like step by step way. And then I like stopped doing that stuff and started trying to only do long form. And like at every step, I told myself like, if my bank account hits X amount of money, I have to go home. I need to have enough in my bank account for, like, a flight home and, like, first and last month's rent. Because if I fail, I don't have anyone who's going to, like, help me figure it out. (laughs) So at every point when I made these decisions, I would have to make the financial calculation of, like, can I try this? Uh Like, can I only do long form? Can I stop Writing daily news stuff and try to freelance like longer features.
1: Did you ever hit the line and be like, "I'll make the line a little bit lower," or did you always stay above the line?
3: I once hit the line in Egypt, and then I like went and did like a short stint at an NGO. This was like for the first year that I was trying to make this work. But then, no, after that, like, <laughs> I did not. I didn't hit the line yet. I might hit the line, so you never know.
1: <laughs> As you got more. You know more of a foothold and then you decided to just do longer stories did you develop a framework for yourself of like what kind of story i like to do how wide open is your did your idea become of like what is a story that i would like to be doing
3: i don't think i ever really like made a decision for myself about that kind of thing no i mean i think like everyone probably who comes on this I'm interested in lots of different stuff, and I can be interested in, like, an assignment that you put in front of me. I'll be like, wow, did you know about, like, Scrabble in Nigeria? This is crazy. (laughs) I have to tell you all about this.
1: You have, over the last eight to ten years, done a number of stories in which, at least from reading the story, it would seem that your personal safety could be at significant risk. I'm interested in particularly, like, the Libya stories, You know, you're going into you're hanging out with arms traffickers who are basically musing about what they could get for you if they kidnapped you. You did a story where you actually went and interviewed Bedouin kidnappers in Egypt who had kidnapped other people and gotten money for them. And what is your uh, outlook going into stories like that in terms of the risks that you take?
3: I mean, I do a lot of planning. I take security and safety seriously. Like even before I was doing stuff like that, I like signed myself up for one of those hostile environments training courses. I did one of those? Yeah. I was like living in Egypt at the time and like there was really no reason for me. I was like, I'm concerned. Things may go wrong. I might be going to Pakistan. I need to take this course. Uh yeah, I do a lot of pre planning. I mean, I talk to a lot of journalists who've like worked in those areas before. I vet as best you can the fixers who I will be working with for like not just have they safely worked with other journalists but like how have they worked with women for example and you know I mean for the most part I mean I think 99.9 percent of the time other journalists have done the same thing and everyone has kind of done a similar thing and then the person ends up being an absolute star like the guy I worked with in Nigeria uh-huh. and the guy I worked with in Libya was just phenomenal. I mean, the first time I went to Libya, I did not have a fixer. That was like its own its own thing. That was
1: the GQ story?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was my first long form story.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah. you just went without someone on the ground.
3: Yeah, it was like a particularly special time I can like tell you the story of that if you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, please. It was kind of funny. GQ was my favorite magazine growing up. I was like obsessed with Sean Flynn. I had this email of this editor at GQ, and because I was so kind of obsessed with them, I never emailed her. I was like too scared to email her. And then at one point I finally like worked up my courage to email her and I said, Hey, I'm going to Pakistan. I'd really love to do this profile of this guy for you. And she wrote me back and was so kind and she was like, Listen, you have no long form experience. You need to get some long form clips and then you can pitch us again. And I was like, Okay, totally, absolutely. You know, I went to Pakistan, I was like doing other stuff, and then the Arab Spring broke out, and I flew back to Cairo immediately in, like, a panic that I had, like, lived in this place for so long but was missing, like, the most the important biggest. thing that had ever happened. Yeah. And I, I arrived there, and I started writing, like, a uh, daily dispatches for Slate. Mm-hmm. And then the uprising or, like, the revolution or whatever you want to call it now, like, ended, and I kind of chased it to Bahrain. I was like sleeping on the floor of like the New York Times bureau's apartment they were so nice because there were a bunch of people like me who were like freelancers who like the staffers kind of took pity on. And they were like, "Okay, okay, like you can stay here because I couldn't afford a hotel. And then the Libyan border fell Mm -hmm. and I had been to Libya the prior year on a junket, which was very rare. And I was like so desperate to go back because I was one of the few younger reporters I think who had even been there not that I knew a ton about it and I emailed this editor at GQ and I said like listen I want to go to Libya for you I know I have no clips but like if you please just let me write two weeks of web dispatches for you from the ground and if you don't like it just cut me or if you like me maybe we can work on a longer story but just like give me a chance And in an incredibly fortuitous situation, which I heard later, apparently she was like sitting in a meeting with the editorial staff being like, what are we going to do about Libya? And she was like, well, (laughs) I got this email from this young woman who's like totally nuts and she wants to go to Libya. And like it was hard to get people at the time, like airports, like nobody knew what was going on in Cairo. And she was like, fine if you can get there, we'll keep you on for two weeks. Like We take the terms of your deal. And so I was like, run, I was like, T-. and then I got to the, I'm like, this was, because like I got to Cairo and then there were like two cars that were headed, because the border had fallen and journalists were just kind of free to go. Uh-huh. And I got in a car with legends. I got in a car with John Lee Anderson, Bobby Wirth, Lindsay Odario, Thomas Dvorak. we were all in this convoy going into Libya, and I was like this 26-year-old crazy person, just being like, "Wow, wow, what are they doing? Like, what? I don't even know." And that was my introduction into Libya. So yeah, I was there alone. I mean, I had friends from Cairo who were there. People were kind of like moving in groups because it was quite unsafe. And yeah, and that was my that was my start. So then they. They did like the web dispatches that they let me write the the story. <laughs> they <Yeah>.
1: did. They <laughs> they made you fall through with the web dispatches first.
3: I did. I did yeah. the web dispatches. Yeah, they were great. I mean, I don't know if they were great, but like it was great to work on them with the editor. Yeah, it was cool.
1: Are you a person who would say to the fixer, or just I guess in this case, if it's just you, if the shells start falling, let's get out of here, or if the shells start falling, let's go find them. Do you have a risk calculus that you have going in about like how far you're willing to push it to get the story?
3: Definitely. I'm like one of those people who's like, if the shells start falling, there's no reason to be where we are. Mm-hmm. Like, who are you going to interview when there's like a shell going off next to you? Right. That doesn't mean I haven't accidentally ended up in those places, but I do recognize that you do get kind of a bit hypnotized and super focused on what you're doing so that if it is dangerous, you have to constantly be asking yourself. When I was in southern Libya, it was a bit like, do I just feel safe because I've been here for a long time and like nothing has happened so I think I can stay longer? Is it wise to continue to be here? Is now just because it feels safe not exactly safe or should I leave? That I think is a calculation that you're making when you're on the ground all the time. But as a rule, when I go into a place, if the front line comes to me, I move away from the front line. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't need to be at the very, very front line.
1: But there also seem to be situations where you're with arms traffickers. I'm thinking of the other Libya story maybe where... If someone says, hey, do you want to go meet this guy? You kind of have to make a version of that calculation, too. And everyone's saying, like, this guy's, he's one thing. He's an Islamic terrorist. No, he's something else. He actually quit that. How do you make those decisions on the spot?
3: Yeah, those are hard decisions. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you make the decision and then you make the choice and you set a timer, probably about 45 minutes to an hour. I would say that like that was the whole purpose of my trip to Libya. So that was like the purpose of the story, the pitch. Like, so if I had said no to that, I, I thought that was important enough to make a risk calculation and to like follow through. But it is something where you're like, I, I try my best and I have rules that I have set for myself that even in the moment of being, like, caught up in this interview and being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I should stay here all night. I have to be, like, now I have to go because this is not necessarily safe.
1: But you're on your own.
3: It depends on who you're working for. Yeah. So, like, if you're working for, let's say, the New York Times magazine, you are not entirely on your own by any means. There's, like, a team of people whose job it is to just keep track of you or to, mm-hmm. like, make sure that you're not doing anything, like, ridiculous. But, like, if you're writing for Harper, it's that it's, like, you, you're Harper's editor and, like, You know, your security contact, your partner, your whoever you're checking in with, you know, you do your daily check in. Like I got to the hotel. I'm safe. Like I I'm leaving the hotel now so that someone's like aware of of your movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that if you don't check into your hotel by 7 p.m., there's concern.
1: So you get back and you have all this material and I want to talk a little bit about how you put it together. It struck me looking at a lot of stories that a lot of them are about people who have been through or are going through some kind of like extreme situation, and you capture the cadence of the way people talk in the story itself. And is that an intentional effort on your part?
3: Thanks for reading and thinking about it. I mean, for starters, that's really flattering. Secondly, yeah, I mean, that is intentional for sure. I do try my best to capture the way people talk. It's even in the process. Like I drop text, uh, like transcript text into the document and then I write into it. And some of the time I've heard that some people think that there's like weird turns of phrase. and that, yeah, uh, yeah, I think
1: that's what made me aware of it is reading some parts of it and thinking like, that's just a strange way to phrase that and then getting kind of mesmerized by the story and realize, oh, that is the way that they described it. It all fits together.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it might come from, like, I don't understand English. Like, I'm not a native English speaker, Mm -hmm. so I don't see necessarily why things have to be in the kind of English you expect it to be. Because, like, I understand my mom when she speaks English, even if she's not speaking exactly the correct kind of English. It can be tricky with a translator because then it's like, is the translator's English wrong? Those kinds of things become an issue. But, like, I do think there's a value if people recognize that that's what's going on, in having the people themselves speak through the text. I mean, I think a lot about how the person I write about isn't technically quoted until the very end of the piece, often, Mm -hmm. Um, it's usually written from their perspective without direct quotes, and the way that I kind of like remove slightly my guilt about channeling it through myself is to use the language that they use. And I think that that's important and I can see why people wouldn't like that. I mean, I would also argue that I think that is more true to to them if we're not going to like just quote them, which we probably just should, right? Like so that's kind of one of the things that goes into that thinking.
1: Do you feel like you're kind of like adopting the lens of the character in the story when you sit down like trying to write from their perspective?
3: As much as that's possible and being aware that it's technically very, very hard given, like, the privileged position I'm in. Yeah, I think I try to be true as best I can to the things that people told me the way they told me. I mean, I think a lot about how, like, when I was starting out doing this, I talked to a lot of writers. I would just, like, cold email people, like, fan email them and be like, can we meet? And... I was really fortunate that a lot of people were really nice about it and like did meet me and like did try to give me advice. And I read a lot of books like Follow the Story and all of that stuff. And one of the things that really stuck with me is the accordion of time. I don't know if you have mm-hmm. ever come across this. Mm-mm. It's like, so we as writers of this medium play the accordion of time. So, like, some instances in Nancy or Hamar or whoever's life are given a lot of space. And then some instances, which maybe she considers important or pivotal, are not necessarily given as much space. And is that fair? Is that true? To what extent, when they read the story, is it true for them because, like, something that was really pivotal for them is given, like, one line or maybe not even mentioned. And something that I think is pivotal is given a ton of space, right? And I think that that is something that I sit with a lot and I grapple with a lot. And I think one of the ways I've thought about at least rectifying it slightly or justifying it is to keep, keep using the voices that exist in my head or that are true and channel that into the page as best I can.
1: People don't like to answer this question who are very thoughtful because it feels like a privileged position, but... If I read your stories, some of them can really wreck me, like the the intensity of the experiences that people went through, imagining them, reading about them. You have heard about them firsthand, and obviously the people that went through them have had the experience, and so it's nothing compared to that. But how do they kind of accumulate within you, and how do you confront that?
3: I think you're right that no one likes to answer this question. I think that there is a danger in like centering yourself when it comes to other people's narratives. And I think that it's important to me and it's a decision for me that I don't write those kinds of process pieces which are like, this is how I got to X place. It's also true that like, Yeah, of course it is hard to hear these stories and it is heartbreaking and I take them home with me and I keep in touch with everybody. Like I was talking to Nancy this morning, I talked to Homer the other day. The least I can do, that I want to do really, is like I stay engaged. I think that helps. I think nothing will will change the fact that like it's true that I get to leave and that Futhu still lives in the Rohingya camp and will live there indefinitely or for the rest of his life unless the international community does something. And that's just a fact, and that's like part of the job, and um, grappling with that is part of the job too.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think of it through a larger goal at all in terms of I want to add to the grains of sand that will pile up to cause a change here?
3: I want the work that I do to accumulate and to be helpful to the people that I write about. And it is my deepest regret that it doesn't. I would love to be one of those journalists who, because they wrote a story, legislation gets passed and, like, someone is held accountable for something and that changes something for the people who they wrote about like the people are exonerated or or something like that I I really it is always the hope that like uh, you can do that but I think you know with international stuff or maybe in I don't know the stories I choose or or whatever like that's just that doesn't happen and I wish I knew how to make it happen I guess not that I am powerful enough to do anything but like I guess the best that I can come up with is like at least there is a record somewhere that there was a genocide against the Rohingya. Not that I engage in like activism journalism, but like, there are things that should be called what they are. And I think that is a journalist's job just to say what they saw.
1: Mm-hmm. There's value in just witnessing it and and then putting that down.
3: I hope so. You know, I don't know. I really hope so.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you very much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for this week's long form podcast. I am your co host, Evan Ratliff. I really appreciate Sarah Tobel coming on the show this week. It was a great conversation. Our editor this week is Gabriela Saldivia. Our intern is Susan Peterson. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And our sponsor is MailChimp. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.